My name's Kate, and I'm the manager of the centre here. It's really lovely to see you all. Um, I hope if it's your first time here that you'll really enjoy this evening and come again. We always start with meditation. This centre <coughs> is funded by the World Community for Christian Meditation. So all our um, events are really around spirituality, but we always like to give people the opportunity to practice. So I'm very, very excited to welcome Rupert again. Um, you've been twice before. Always such, uh, such an interesting, fascinating, mind-blowing evening. So I'm ready to have my mind blown again. I was asking a friend what to say about you. Um, and she said that you treat science as a poet, um, which I think is a really, really lovely way to sum up your, your interests and the way that you express your views. And um, yeah, so you're very welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's very good to be here again. Um, I'm speaking on science and spiritual practices. Um, and I suppose 10 years ago, this would have seemed a very surprising thing to talk about because it seemed that science was totally anti-spiritual and atheistic and spiritual practices had nothing to do with it. But we're in a time of great change at the moment. Um, firstly, within science itself, uh, there's a mood of change. Uh, the dogmas of scientific materialism, which have dominated the sciences since the late 19th century, are coming unraveled very fast. Uh, I discuss in my book, The Science Delusion, which is my most recent book. Um, the ten principal dogmas of materialistic science um, are being undermined by the advances of science itself. And it turns out that these dogmas that most people think of as certain truths are actually just assumptions. For example, the idea the, that matter is unconscious is just an assumption uh, laid down in the 17th century. Um, the idea that your mind is confined to the inside of your head is nothing but the activity of your brain is just an assumption uh, that's probably uh, not true and is being increasingly questioned within the sciences themselves. Uh, particularly in the area of consciousness studies. The assumption that the universe is purposeless is just an assumption and follows from another assumption that everything in nature is mechanical, uh, tre treating machines as the principal metaphor for nature. That, again, is not a metaphor. It's quite good as far as it goes in some areas, but it's not the ultimate truth about nature. It makes much more sense to think of nature as an organism, the whole universe as an organism, Gaia, the Earth, as a living organism, and of course to think of living organisms themselves as living organisms rather than machines. So there are big changes in science, um, but there are also changes within the atheist world. The people who are non-religious or anti-religious um, are increasingly aware that this way of living leaves too much out. And there's been uh, a most interesting movement in the last three or four years um, towards rediscovering spirituality by people who are atheists or 
have no uh, religious beliefs. For example, Alain de Botton, who's a, a well-known philosopher and popular writer, uh, was raised atheist. Um, he doesn't question his atheist upbringing. Um, but he wrote a book uh, two or three years ago called Religion for Atheists, uh, recognizing that uh, being an atheist left so much out. He describes his upbringing by Jewish parents in Zurich, Switzerland. His father was a banker. Um, and he says his parents treated anyone who showed the slightest interest in religion as if they were suffering from an incurable disease and never took them seriously thereafter. Um, he was brought up in that atmosphere. And he says, I accept atheism, but I'm interested in atheism 2.0. What happens when you've done all this stuff attacking religion? What do you do next? Because your life has a terrible void. Uh, religious people sing together. They go to church together if they're Christian. They sing, whereas atheists stop singing. They pray. Atheists stop praying. They celebrate festivals. Atheists stop celebrating festivals. Uh, they have regular practices of gratitude. Atheists have no practices of gratitude. They hear sermons which try to tell them how to lead their life better, whereas atheists only hear lectures that impart information. Um, and he shows that this uh, leads to a great lack in people's lives. And his book uh, suggests ways of trying to reinvent religion for atheists. For example, he plans to build an atheist temple in London. He's instituted a series of atheist sermons on Sunday mornings, uh, which, uh, if you go to church, as I do regularly, uh, you, the sermon's embedded within singing and prayers. The atheist sermon is just a standalone atheist sermon. Um, uh, not as interesting, I would have thought. Um, uh, so he's trying to invent atheist festivals. Um, the reason he's doing it is because of this sense of lack in his own life and in the lack of others he knows. Meanwhile, um, Sam Harris, who's one of the so-called new atheists, whose book in 2005, The End of Faith, um, was succeeded by Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, Daniel Dennett's uh, Breaking the Spell, and Christopher Hitchens' atheist polemic, God is not great, how important is everything? Uh, these spate of atheists, militant atheist books, um, came out in 2005 to 2007 and were part of a new crusading atheist movement. But Sam Harris has now taken up meditation, and his latest book is called Waking Up, Spirituality Without Religion. And he's now an ardent advocate of meditation, gives online meditation courses. Um, so... Here's a very interesting phenomenon, atheist meditators. Susan Blackmore, who's one of our leading uh, public atheists here in Britain, is also a practitioner of meditation. She does Zen meditation and uh, wrote about uh, a book about Zen meditation uh, fairly recently. And meanwhile, two years ago, uh, a couple of um, uh, leading atheist comedians started an atheist church called the Sunday Assembly, which now has about 70 branches uh, in Britain and elsewhere. Where they meet on Sundays, they sing, they don't sing hymns together, they sing songs together. Uh, a friend of mine who went to it said it's a bit sort of happy-clappy. Um, and they try to build up a community, they try to help each other. In fact, they're trying to reinvent the church. So uh, all this is going on uh, in the last two or three years, it's a tremendous change of mood. 
And um, at the moment, I'm uh, writing a book called Science and Spiritual Practices, the theme of my talk this evening, um, because there's a lot of spiritual practices. Um, I can think of at least 20. I only deal with seven in my book, a selection. But many of these have now been investigated scientifically. And far from debunking them, these scientific investigations have shown that these practices are good for you. Uh, atheism, uh, I mean spiritual practices, have many health benefits. Um, in fact, uh, you know, so many of them have health benefits. And the regular practice of religion, which includes quite a range of spiritual practices, including praying and singing and helping other people and, uh, and, and, and so on, um, uh, this is, has been shown in many studies to have health benefits. People who regularly attend church, on the whole, live longer, uh, have fewer heart attacks, uh, suffer less from depression than those that don't. Um, it, the other way around, it means that people who stop doing these things become more depressed, live shorter, and have more heart conditions. In other words, atheism should come with a health warning. Um, <laughs> So that's precisely why these atheists have, have uh, starting atheist churches and having atheist meditations courses and so forth. How have we got into this situation? I'm just going to spend a few minutes taking an overview of where we are today. We live in what is often called a secular age. And how did we get there? Uh, so I'll, I'll give a very short five-minute history of how we got here, and then I'll get on to the actual spiritual practices that I'm going to talk about this evening. The best analysis of why we're where we are and how we got here is in a book by the philosopher Charles Taylor called Secular Age. It's a brilliant uh, historical overview. Charles Taylor, who's himself a Christian, a Canadian, um, started with the question, how is it that in A.D. 1500, practically everybody in Europe was religious uh, and had religious practices and took for granted the existence of God and a religious way of life? This was uh, not because they were forced to. It was just almost unthinkable not to. But in the 21st century, uh, being religious and believing in God is just one option among many. And in fact, it's a minority uh, pursuit. How have we got from there to here? What is, what's been going on? Um, and the, the change is very extreme. I mean, current church attendance levels in Britain are around about 5% on weekly church attendance. In Spain, it's about 7 or 8%. In Ireland, it's about 15%, down from 80% in the 1980s. Um, in France, about 5%. Sweden, about 5%. Um, Going to church or, being, or having regular religious practices, synagogues, mosques, or temples, um, is now a very minority pursuit. Um, so why? Well, one of the first causes of this change was the Protestant Reformation, which by attacking the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, undermined the authority uh, and the taking-for-granted aspect of it. Um, and at the same time disenchanted the world because the Protestant reformers were against the idea that sacraments could have a kind of magical power, that holy places could be holy. 
um, they made religion much more interior, much more to do with individual minds and conscience. So it was an interiorizing of religion, taking the sacred out of the natural world and out of the realms of sacred relics and that sort of thing. Um, that desacralization of the world helped prepare the way for the scientific revolution in the 17th century, um, which treated the whole of nature as a machine. Before that, everyone had taken it for granted that nature was alive, that the universe was an organism, animals and plants had souls. In medieval theology and philosophy taught in all our universities, like Oxford and Cambridge in the Middle Ages, um, following St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the idea was that all plants have souls, the vegetative soul that shapes their body. The soul was the form of the body. The, the, body was, uh, the soul was not in the body, the body was in the soul. Animals had vegetative souls that shaped their bodies, and also animal souls that uh, underlay their instincts, movements, sensations, and so on, emotions. Um, and, of course, the word animal comes from the Latin word anima, that means soul. And the human soul contained a vegetative level that shapes our body, like plant souls shape plant bodies, an animal level that gives us our emotions and our animal nature, and most of our senses and emotions are similar to those of animals. Fear, fright, anger, lust, etc., hunger, thirst. Um, but in addition, we have a rational or conscious mind uh, to do with language, thought, and so on. And so in the medieval view, our conscious mind was only part of a much larger psychic system that connected us to the rest of nature. The 17th century revolution said, no, uh, that's all wrong. Human beings do have rational conscious minds, but they're not in space and time. They're spiritual, outside space and time. And uh, the only other things that live in the realm of the spirit are God and the angels. They're not part of nature, not part of science. But the whole of the extended world of nature, the whole of material nature, is inanimate machinery with no purpose, no soul, uh, no direction, made up of unconscious matter. And that created division between the realms of science and religion. Science got the whole of nature, including the human body. Religion got human souls, morality, um, and angels and God. And uh, the two lived in parallel for a long time. Uh, but in the 19th century, um, many people thought having two basic principles was too much. So they said, okay, well, let's just get rid of the sense of all this realm of spirit, which you can't measure scientifically anyway. Uh, we'll just have matter, unconscious matter. That's the philosophy of materialism. Uh, and that's come to dominate the sciences ever since. It was also a political ideology in the communist systems, which were intrinsically atheist. Um, and so the materialist view um, became the predominant one, uh, but it, it meant that the whole of nature functioned automatically. There was no need for God to do anything in the natural world at all. Uh, God at best became an optional extra who started it off in the first place and pressed the start button, having designed the laws of nature and the physical constants and started the amount of matter and energy in the universe uh, off in the first place. After that, it functioned automatically. And some Protestant theologians took the view, yes, that's fine, that's true. Uh, so what God does is occasionally intervenes by suspending the laws of nature to bring about miracles. Uh, and the main role of religion is to concentrate on morality. 
Well, this is a very, very restricted role because previously religion was about the whole of the world, all of nature. God was in nature, pervading nature, and in everything. Now God was restricted to a kind of moral judge um, and a, a rather incredible intervener in the machinery of nature. And that's the kind of God that atheists don't believe in. It's also the kind of God that I don't believe in, um, although I'm not an atheist. Um, so that became the predominant view of God and nature in intellectual circles, increasingly so from the 19th century onwards. Uh, combined uh, with um, a, a rise in political atheism, um, uh, this led to a general loss of credibility of traditional religious doctrines and helped prepare the way for this secular world. Another ingredient was the uh, political conflict between different religious groups. After the Reformation, you had Protestants and Catholics killing each other in the Thirty Years' War. Then a whole range of Protestant sects like Baptists, Quakers, um, uh, Congregationalists, and so forth. Um, and this meant that states in Europe became more secular uh, because no longer could any single uh, philosophy or religion dominate over the others. Um, the United States Constitution was the first that clearly separated church and state. Although we're officially a Christian state here, uh, in practice, our state is very secular, which means religion doesn't come into public discourse, it's not part of the realm of government or education, except in special compartments called religious education. It's not mentioned in most of the media. Most films and entertainment have airbrushed out everything to do with religion. In Downton Abbey, um, it turns out that they never showed people sitting down to a meal because when Downton Abbey, the period it referred to, they would have said grace before meals. Uh, but they could, so they could see show them sitting down, sitting down to a meal because they would have had grace. And they thought that might offend atheists. So uh, it was completely airbrushed out, any mention of religion. So this, we're now in this secular state, um, which... Uh, has created this world in which, for most people, um, religion is not part of their life. A, a, a survey last year showed that for the first time, more than 50% of the British population described themselves as having no religion. The percentage of atheists is about 13%. So most people who don't have a religion are not atheists. Um, they don't call themselves atheists. They call themselves agnostic, or they call themselves spiritual, but not religious. Um, or they're seekers. So atheism, hardcore atheism, is still a small minority. Um, although people like Richard Dawkins like to give the impression that all scientists are atheists, it's simply not true. A recent survey that's just been conducted in the last few weeks, uh, not published yet, but I saw the results just yesterday, shows that among practicing scientists and doctors, about 25% are atheists, higher than the re rest of the population, and another 20% or so are agnostics. Um, but it's still less than half uh, the scientific and medical community are atheists and agnostics. About the same number are religious or spiritual but not religious or with some kind of nominal religious affiliation or they meditate or have spiritual practices. So this is the context we're in. We're in a context where there's a great deal of spiritual searching because this secular world that we've created um, is deeply unsatisfying for many people and leaves this great vacuum in people's lives. 
Well, there are quite a lot of spiritual practice. Now, since we're in the Christian Meditation Center, I'll start with meditation. Um, this is one that I'm very interested in myself. I myself have been meditating on and off for more than 40 years and daily practice a form of Christian meditation. Um, meditation has been carried out, it's been given different names. It used to be in the Western used to be called contemplative prayer. Um, uh, it's been present in all religious traditions. It was present in the in monastic uh, religious orders, convents, and thank you, <coughs> convents and monasteries. Um, it's uh, widely dispersed in the Eastern Orthodox churches, where many people say the Jesus prayer or do other forms of mantra-based mantra meditation. Um, there are Sufi forms of meditation within Islam. Um, there are, of course, many forms of Hindu and Buddhist meditation, uh, with a Sikh meditation. It's present in all religious traditions. So it's, it's also practiced very widely in the modern world by people who are not religious or uh, within a secular context. Um, recent surveys showed that about two and a half million people in the United States meditate. Uh, so it's, it's a very widespread practice. The modern phase started really in the 1970s uh, when two researchers in America, pioneering researchers, started looking at traditional forms of meditation scientifically. One of them was Herbert Benson at uh, Harvard Medical School who was uh, influenced by people who took up transcendental meditation, partly under the influence of the Beatles in the late 1960s. Many students and colleagues of his started meditating uh, using mantra-based meditation. Uh, so he started doing research on it. Um, he did, as a doctor, he started physiological research. He measured people's blood pressure, their heart rate. Um, uh, he measured the, the stress levels of stress hormones like cortisol. Um, and he looked at the long-term effects of meditation. He found it was extremely beneficial. People's levels of stress went down. Uh, um, and he called it the relaxation response. It deactivated uh, experience of anxiety, which a lot of people have. It enabled people to sleep better. Um, it made people less depressed. Um, it had a great many of these physiological benefits. Uh, he mainly used a mantra-based form of meditation. A few years later, another American researcher at Massachusetts uh, uh, Medical School, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, started investigating meditation following Buddhist methods, which he learned from Thich Nhat Hanh and from other Buddhist meditation teachers uh, in the Vipassana tradition. That form of meditation is usually called open awareness meditation. You don't have a mantra, but you uh, follow the breathing or uh, listen to the body or sensations. You become aware of the immediate presence through sensations. He too showed that this form of meditation had the same kind of benefits as mantra-based meditation. In fact, they're similar in their effects. Since then, there have been uh, numerous studies of meditation um, on, uh, and its effects on the brain. And not surprisingly, the pattern of activity in the brain changes in people who are meditating. The Dalai Lama uh, 
took part in some of this research by getting some very experienced Tibetan monks to take part in uh, studies where they were put in fMRI scanners uh, which showed uh, that their brains worked in a completely different way when they were meditating from normal people. Much higher incidence of uh, activity in certain areas of the brain. Also in EEG measurements, much more gamma activity, which are fairly fast brain waves, around 30 or 40 cycles per second. Um, and more recent studies have shown that people who meditate actually show changes in brain anatomy. Some bits of their brain get bigger and other bits get smaller. Bits concerned with fear and anxiety generally get smaller and bits concerned with more restful ways of being get bigger. Uh, again, this is not terribly surprising. I mean, we don't think it's surprising when weightlifters develop bigger muscles. Um, and if people use bits of their brain more, uh, then uh, those bits of the brain can enlarge. So um, studies have shown uh, very beneficial effects of meditation. It's now been evaluated by the National here in Britain, because a variety of studies have shown that people who meditate are less prone to depression. Depression is one of the great diseases of modern industrial secular society. If you believe in a worldview that says there's no point in anything, uh, it's a depressing worldview, and I don't think it's at all surprising that most people, many people, get depressed, um, much more than they used to. Um, so, uh, it's been found that uh, in controlled clinical trials that when random samples of people are assigned to different groups, so some are assigned to mindfulness meditation, others are assigned to courses of anti-depression medication, uh, the ones on the mindfulness meditation uh, do better uh, than the ones on the courses of medication. And more importantly, from the point of view of the national health, it's cheaper. Uh, so now you can actually get a prescription meditation from a psychiatrist. Um, and the National Health Service is rolling out meditation trainers uh, because the demand is increasing all the time. Um, so here's a spiritual practice uh, that's been part of every religious tradition that's come into the West is, is still taught within religious traditions like the Christian Meditation Center or, or the Dalai Lama teaches Buddhist meditation. Uh, lots of Hindus teach Hindu meditation. But it also exists in these secularized forms, mindfulness-based meditation, for example, um, and has now been taken up by these uh, prominent atheists like Sam Harris. So what's going on? We know about all the physiological changes, but the reason that uh, people have meditated in the past, the reason that yogis meditated in caves in the Himalayas or monks meditated in monasteries, um, uh, Buddhist and Christian monks, um, was not just so they could save money to the monastic health service or uh, so they could lead better lives and uh, be more successful in love and business, which is one of the ways in which it's promoted. Uh, if your mind's clear, you'll be more successful. That's not why they were doing it, although that may well have made them more successful and happier and less depressed and um, less stressed out and live longer. All that may have happened, but that wasn't their main reason. Their main reason was because uh, they believed they had a worldview in which the ultimate ground of being is conscious. Uh, the main difference, I think, between atheists and non-atheists is that atheists think that human consciousness is 
practically all there is. You know, that, that we live in an unconscious universe. I should say materialist atheists um, uh, think that consciousness is confined to human brains and maybe the brains of higher animals or even lower animals as well for the liberal materialists. Um, but the rest of the universe, the stars, the galaxy, nature as a whole, everything else is unconscious. Whereas anyone who's religious believes that ultimately the ground of all reality, uh, the source of everything in nature, the ultimate source of everything is conscious. Um, there are different ways of conceiving of this ultimate consciousness. The, the Buddhists don't call it God, they call it Nirvana, or um, they, they have other conceptions for these ultimate realms, but they're beyond the individual human mind. For those who believe in God, Christians, um, Muslims and Jews, and Hindus, who with their different names for God, like Brahman, uh, see uh, divine consciousness as the ultimate reality. And that human consciousness is a kind of spin-off or spark of the divine consciousness. The Hindus are very clear about this. The, one of the central doctrines in the Upanishads, their great and profound holy books, uh, is Atman is Brahman. The individual consciousness of ours, our human consciousness, is ultimately part of God's consciousness. Because um, God is the source of all nature and all consciousness. Um, and the divine consciousness is reflected in every human mind. One of their favorite metaphors is of buckets of water. If you have lots of buckets of water and you look at the sun or the moon reflected in them, each bucket contains a reflection of the sun or the moon. Um, it looks different and separate, but they're all reflections of the same sun, even though each bucket is separate and different from the others. They all have the same ground or source. Now, for people who believe that, meditation is more than just a way of improving your health or lowering your cortisol levels. Um, it's a way of uh, going beyond the distractions that normally fill our minds by creating an alternative focus, either the mantra or watching the breath. Um, and by enabling, uh, through the practice, one can become present. And through being present, rather than being preoccupied with worries, fears, obsessions, fantasies, all the things that normally fill our minds, uh, by becoming present, uh, we come into the presence of a greater consciousness, the divine consciousness. And because in all these theologies, Eastern and Western, God is supremely joyful, uh, we can share in that divine bliss or joy by becoming present. Uh, it's not just a release of neurotransmitters somewhere inside our frontal lobes. Uh, we're sharing in uh, divine joy or bliss. Now, for Sam Harris and for other atheist meditators, that's not what's happening. It's all a matter of changes happening in the brain. The meditation is sort of short-circuiting bits of the brain, causing release of uh, neurotransmitters, and activating pleasure centers, and so forth. Um, it's all inside the head. But for those who meditate in a larger framework, and it can interpret it differently. It's something much more than just inside the head. But the interesting thing is that you can meditate, and you can have these benefits of meditation uh, within different frameworks of interpretation. I think myself that the atheist one is very narrow and limited, but nevertheless, atheists also benefit from meditating. And it's, I think, a wonderful thing that in the modern world it's possible to meditate without having to put the belief system first. 
You, what should come first is experience. And I think one of the things that's happened in, in the last two or three centuries is that uh, attacks on religion and defenses of religion have focused on belief primarily. Religion is not primarily about belief, it's about experience. And the reason most people go to church is because they like singing hymns, they like praying with other people, they like meeting members of their community, they like taking part in an elevating ritual or liturgy, um, they like that way of connecting with God. It's not primarily about signing up to a particular set of beliefs, although Christian services include the creed, um, and the creed is a statement of belief in God, the Holy Trinity. Most Christians have a pretty hazy idea of what that's really about. So it's not primarily about belief. Atheists love to focus on the belief side because then they think they can just refute it all by arguments. But it's not really what, that's, what it's about. And I think what spiritual practices do and why I think they're so important today is they enable anyone, whatever their belief, uh, to start from experience. And if you meditate a lot, it may be that through the experiences you have, you might actually begin to question an atheist belief if you're an atheist. You may think, wow, is this really all just inside my head? And why should I believe it's just inside my head? Well, because the materialist theory says so. But that's just an assumption. Maybe there's something much more going on in the universe. And I think through practice, one can go beyond um, a constricted belief system. But you don't start by discussing the beliefs. You can start by having the experiences. Now, the second practice I'd like to talk about is gratitude. All religions encourage gratitude, and so does ordinary child upbringing. I mean, most children are taught to write thank you letters and to say thank you, um, and it's considered just normal good manners. Um, but it's also part of all religious traditions. Uh, if you go to church, then a lot of the prayers and the hymns that you say are prayers of thanksgiving and hymns of thanksgiving, praising God, giving thanks for the many gifts we have in our lives. If you stop going to church or having any regular religious practices, then you don't have these expressions of gratitude as a matter of course. You can reinvent them, of course, but it's much harder to reinvent something than just to do it naturally as part of your normal life. Same with gratitude before meals. Uh, many traditional religious people say grace before meals with the whole family or with a group of friends, but non-religious people, generally speaking, don't. Uh, so this opportunity, these daily opportunities for gratitude, are simply uh, fade away. Now, there's been many studies of gratitude and its effects by a group of psychologists called positive psychologists. Now, positive psychology is a movement that started what? 20, 25 years ago in psychology, uh, where uh, a group of psychologists said, why don't we look at what makes people happy? That was an original thought, because until then, psychology had all been about what makes people unhappy. If you think about it, Freud and Jung and people were seeing neurotic patients, paranoid patients, schizophrenic patients, patients with obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, most of the understanding of psychology was based on the psychotherapy of people who were seriously disturbed in one way or another. And it was an attempt to find out why they were unhappy. Had they been abused as children? You know, had they got abnormal uh, uh, biochemical balances in their brain, etc., etc.? But until recently, uh, no one actually said, well, what makes people happy? 
And that's what the positive psychologists did. They, they started finding out what makes people happy. And one of the first studies they did was to just monitor people throughout the day uh, to see when they were happy and when they weren't happy and just the course of normal life. And how, one method they used was they had paging devices. People who were volunteers for the study had a pager. And at random times, the pager would go off, and then they had to write down what they were doing and how they felt on a one-to-nine scale. Um, how happy do you feel? Uh, you know, if people were doing something really boring and dreary or uh, stuff, they usually didn't feel very happy. Uh, but sometimes, when you looked at all these results from lots of people, uh, you found there were certain occasions when people were happy. And what was the common factor of what made people happy? The answer is, uh, when they were in a state of flow. People were happy when they were engaged in an animated conversation with friends, when they were making love, when they were making music, when they were dancing, when they were doing a job they enjoyed doing, uh, when they were absorbed in their work. In all these conditions, people were happy. They were in a state of flow. And when they were not in a state of flow, they were, generally speaking, less happy. So they then looked at... Um, characteristics of people who are happier than others. Some people are happier than others habitually. And they found that people who are habitually happy, who are cheerful and happy much of the time, turned out to be people who are also very grateful. People who are unhappy are people who are ungrateful. Um, if you're ungrateful, then you may spend a lot of time complaining about things that have gone wrong. If you're happy, you these people tend to be people who... Um, give thanks for what's going right. It's partly the glass half full and the glass half empty syndrome. You know, if you have a glass 50% uh, of 50 of it full of liquid or empty of liquid, um, then some people say the glass is half full, the optimists, and some say the glass is half empty, the pessimists or the ungrateful. Um, anyway, they found a very strong correlation has been uh, the studies all in different parts of the world have all shown this correlation between happiness and gratitude. So then, of course, the skeptics and the critics said, well, of course these people uh, are, are grateful because they're happy. Uh, you know, who wouldn't be uh, grateful if they were happy? And these people are unhappy, they've got nothing to be grateful about. Uh, so uh, it, so their, their idea was that people are grateful because they're happy. So the positive psychologists then designed experiments to find out if people are grateful because they're happy or if they're happy because they're grateful. Um, so they did experiments. So these are, all these psychological experiments are rather limited and crude, but the basic type of experiment involved getting groups of volunteers, dividing them into three groups. One group of people was asked to count their blessings, to make a list of all the things they felt grateful for uh, at that time. Um, including people they felt grateful to, things in their lives they felt grateful for. Uh, one other group of, of people was asked to make a list of all the things that they were found annoying, all the hassles in their life, um, the things that they were, uh, their annoyances and things they were angry about. Another group was simply asked to write a story about events that had happened to them in the last week. Well, it turned out that the people who counted their blessings um, on, they were, every week they, were done, they did questionnaires and to measure how happy they were. They were much happier um, if they were uh, 
uh, did these gratefulness exercises than the people who uh, were, were, had the list of complaints or who just wrote stories about things that had happened. So um, it, the most powerful intervention they found was to ask people to write a letter expressing their gratitude to somebody who'd helped them in their life who they, think, who they thought they'd never properly thanked. And then, the, in the most extreme form of this exercise, they went to that person and read them the letter. People who did that were measurably happier for months afterwards. Um, so, uh, it's, uh, many of our parents, certainly my mother said, count your blessings. Um, it turns out they were right. It's now been scientifically proved. <laughs> It's a good thing to do. Um, so, again, you see, this, this, you don't have to go to church or to a mosque or to a synagogue or to a temple to give thanks. If you do, then you have an automatic way of doing it because it's just part of the normal procedure. If you don't, you can introduce it into your life and into the life of your family. Um, uh, it's just a bit harder work, but anyone can do this. And I think one of the things that everybody can do is, is give thanks before meals. It's such a simple thing to do. It costs nothing, takes 30 seconds or a minute. Um, and um, it's something we've always done in our home. Um, and we brought up our children doing this, and they completely take this for granted now. It's part of our daily life. And when we have visitors and guests, we do the same. We either sing a grace, or we hold hands and say a grace, or um, if it's just the family, uh, we hold hands in silence for a while and, and just to give a period of pause to give thanks before eating. It's very simple, and, and it makes it quite a big difference. And I find that with our family, um, if we don't do this, it just doesn't feel right. It's a bit like not cleaning your teeth in the morning or something. Um, and so I think many of these spiritual practices can be very simple, something that anyone can do. Um, irrespective of your belief system. And if, if you're an atheist, you can still give thanks for the people who have prepared the food and all the people who've grown and provided the food and the earth that's given the food for, uh, for us to eat and sunlight that fed, fed the plants that have fed us ultimately. Um, you can still give thanks. But again, how far you go depends on your belief system. If you're an atheist or a secular humanist, you can give thanks to people, and that's very important. But it's harder to give thanks to nature if nature's inad just inanimate machinery, and if evolution is just a matter of blind chance and natural laws uh, that are just there. Uh, because there's no one to give thankful to, thank to be thankful to. There's just kind of mechanical processes. It's harder to be thankful if you have an atheist worldview as soon as you go beyond the human level. And if you have a religious view, then you can be thankful to God for the fact that anything exists at all. Because everyone who believes in God thinks that God is the ground of all being, that without a, a divine basis for everything, there would be nothing. That's why there's something rather than nothing. And God sustains the world, not just by starting it off in the first place, but from moment to moment, keeping everything in being. That's the traditional Christian and Buddhist and Muslim and, well, and Hindu um, uh, view and Jewish view of God. God sustains all things from moment to moment. So again, um, you can do the spiritual practice. You can take it as far as you like, or 
as less far if you if you if if that's how your belief system is. But it's better to do it than not to do it, as these many studies have shown. Now, um, another practice that I think is particularly important is pilgrimage. Um, and this is particularly relevant at the moment because pilgrimage is undergoing an astonishing revival in Europe right now. I'll come to that in a minute. <coughs> but if we look at pilgrimage in the big picture, um, what we see is that the uh, background to this is that many species, not just humans, but many species are, are migratory. They have two homes. Swallows, for example, that nest in Britain, um, spend the winters, our winters, in South Africa. And then they come back in the spring, usually to the very same barn or building where they nested the year before. They're able to fly 6,000 miles and navigate with such skill they can get back to the very same spot. Now, and then in the winter, in, in the autumn, they go back to southern Africa, which is where they spend our winter. Well, you could see that as a kind of prototype of a pilgrimage. It's a journey with a goal, a destination that the whole group does. And uh, where they, when they get to this place, it's something that provides nourishment. It's a place they can breed. It's a place where new life can come forth. Um, well, our ancestors were hunter-gatherers. Uh, the Neolithic Revolution only started about 10,000 years ago. And until then, all humans um, lived as hunter-gatherers in one way or another. And what hunter-gatherers do is gather plants and hunt animals. Um, and to do that, you have to move around because as the seasons change, the places where you find the pasture and where the animals are, because uh, they migrate, and the places you find the vegetable plant food change as the year uh, goes around. And some people still live like that. The reindeer herders of um, the Arctic um, in Siberia uh, still move with their reindeer herds. Um, they're nomadic, and they follow an annual cycle like the reindeer themselves. So our ancestors followed uh, annual cycles of movement. And when they went to these different places on the cycle, they, they, there was a story attached to each place, and they told the story. Uh, this, it wasn't just a journey, it was a journey, it was a kind of pilgrimage they were on with stories and stages along the way. In Australia, they, they called these uh, journeys that they went on song lines because they sang as they went from place to place. They sang the story of the place. And um, so these um, pilgrimages were part of every culture um, going to these uh, sacred places. And it wasn't just the places themselves uh, that were sacred. Um, it was the path that led to them. So when um, the Neolithic Revolution occurred, uh, people started settling and building stable structures. And they started building sacred places, which were places of assembly. Stonehenge and Avebury here in England are examples. Um, they weren't big cities. It wasn't as if these were temples in the center of vast cities. They were places that people came together for festivals. Um, and there was a kind of pilgrimage to go to the festival. And the pilgrimage route uh, 
became a kind of processional route. What was uh, the whole group moving along a sacred way to the destination of a pilgrimage became a religious procession. It's very much the same idea, walking there on foot. And as city, as villages, towns, and cities were built, the Neolithic Revolution, uh, starting with cities in Egypt and Sumeria, and um, places like that, um, then the cities were focused on a temple. At the centre of the city was a sacred place that made the city holy and justified the city, um, and also acted as the focus of its religious and spiritual life. So, at the centre of every city was a temple. We still have that in England. The definition of cities in England is to have a cathedral at their centre, which is why very small towns like Wells and Sovel, um, uh, which have cathedrals, are called cities. It's the city of Wells and the city of Sovel, population 5,000, uh, whereas there are much larger towns uh, that are not cities, they're just towns. So we still have a, a relic of this ancient tradition in our own country. Um, so, in, in the Holy Land, uh, when the Jewish people arrived there after their, their period of slavery in Egypt, uh, they started off by adopting the sacred places of the indigenous people. Uh, one of them was Bethel. Um, before the um, period in Egypt, when the Jews were slaves of the Egyptians, uh, in the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, Jacob, the Old Testament tells us, lay down uh, with a stone for his pillow, and there he had a vision of angels ascending and descending from heaven, going up and down a ladder, Jacob's ladder, between heaven and earth. And many sacred places are considered gateways or bridges between the heavens and the earth. They're the way that the two, the celestial and the terrestrial realm connect. Um, Jacob gave thanks for this vision, anointed the stone with oil, and it became a major place of pilgrimage for the Jewish people when they returned to the Holy Land from Egypt. Um, there were already megaliths, standing stones, in the Holy Land. So uh, many people have suggested that it wasn't so much that Jacob created a megalith. They, megaliths were much older than the Jewish people's stay in the Holy Land. Uh, instead, he may well have slept at an existing uh, megalith, and then that one became particularly sacred for the Jewish people. It was already between heaven and earth. And when people started building temples and um, holy places and sanctuaries, um, then uh, very often they emphasized this vertical dimension. These were literally places that connected heavens and earth, heaven and earth. Standing stones, often quite tall. I mean, Stonehenge, what, 12 feet or something? And there are a lot of uh, freestanding men here in places like Brittany and in, in, on the west coast of Britain and Ireland. Um, so um, th then in Egypt, they had obelisks, which are sort of more refined version of standing stones. Many of them are monolithic, single stones with a pointy top. We have one here in London, Cleopatra's Needle, looted from Egypt, now on the bank of the Thames. Uh, near the embankment uh, underground station in the embankment gardens, or, or just on the riverside by the embankment gardens. Um, and then um, Christians started building temples and churches and cathedrals with towers and spires. And Muslims uh, build minarets next to their mosques. 
all of these are to, and, uh, Indian temples, Hindu temples have great poles in the temple, usually metal poles in front of the Holy of Holies. So these things um, are symbolically connecting heaven and earth, but I think they're also literally connecting heaven, heaven and earth. They're places that are struck by lightning, preferentially. Um, lightning goes to tall places. It, it hits mountain tops, it hits tall trees, oak or ash trees, more than other species in Britain, which is probably why they were sacred to the Druids more than other species, because they're more struck by lightning. And lightning is the most dramatic and visible way in which the heaven affects the earth. Until recently, it was thought that lightning was produced by electrical charge between the clouds and the land by a kind of friction. Um, it's now known that it actually originates much higher up, about 50 miles higher up in the sky, the ionosphere, uh, which is electrically charged. There are electrical impulses going through from the ionosphere to the clouds. They're called sprites. They glow purple. Jet pilots often see them. Um, and whenever there's a uh, a solar storm on the sun with a greater intensity of solar wind, charged particles flowing from the sun to the earth, you get an intensification of lightning strikes on earth and also an intensification of the northern and the southern lights, which are plasma discharges, where this energy from the sun literally comes down to earth. And when there's a supernova or an exploding star in the heavens, the great bursts of cosmic rays, those also give extra lightning strikes and northern lights. So the holy places, the uh, places where there's a literal connection of the heavens and the earth. Um, and that's why towers and spires uh, and minarets and so on have lightning conductors on them. Until the 19th century, people didn't know that lightning was an electrical discharge. But, and very often these buildings were damaged by lightning. Uh, now they have lightning conductors on them that facilitate uh, the traveling of the uh, current from the heaven down into the earth by the sacred place. I haven't looked at the tower of this church, but I wouldn't be surprised. It probably almost certainly would have a lightning conductor. Um, I've asked people who are church wardens at various churches, do they have any record of how often their church is struck by lightning? And I haven't found any yet who do. Um, but it's not rocket science to um, develop something that can detect a massive electric discharge going down a lightning conductor. And there's now a company in India that makes lightning detection systems that you have an induction of a current in a device which you put near the lightning conductor, which sends an SMS message um, to tell you when there's been a lightning strike. If I ran a church in England, I'd put online when the lightning strikes happened and, in fact, create maps of where these, uh, where these are happening. Sacred places attract the lightning. The lightning is actually attracted towards them. You can see videos on YouTube where, say there's a spire here, a lightning strike comes up here, will bend round so that it hits it, because these places actually attract lightning. Nowadays, in big cities, the ones that attract most of it are banks and, and, <laughs> and commercial buildings. But in most English towns and villages, the churches and towers and, and, uh, and spires are still the tallest structures. And round Middleton Square, uh, St. Mark's Church is the tallest structure. And so this would be the one that would still be channeling lightning into the ground. Well, 
Pilgrimage uh, was a very important part of medieval England. In the Middle Ages, uh, people went on pilgrimages to ancient sacred sites and new sacred sites that were ones where the relics of Christian saints were uh, buried, usually under the altar of cathedrals or churches. Um, they, so the pilgrimage had been going on ever since the ancient world. The Jewish people went on pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the festivals, and Jesus did himself. After all, he traveled around on foot, and he went to Jerusalem for the festivals as a pilgrim. Um, so it's part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And as Europe was Christianized, uh, some of the ancient sacred places were Christianized and became places of pilgrimage. In Ireland, for example, Croke Patrick, the holy mountain uh, dedicated to St. Patrick, is almost certainly an ancient holy mountain before Christianity. Loch Derg, which is a major pilgrimage place. Again, probably long before Christianity, it was a sacred place. And one of my favorite pilgrimage spots on the continent is the Saint-Baume in Provence, uh, where there's a cave in a massif, uh, one of those great rock outcrops in Provence, um, an ancient cave. Uh, in it there's a spring, and there are stalactites and so on. And it's sacred to uh, St. Mary Magdalene, who's believed to have traveled to France from the Holy Land and lived the last years of her life there. And surrounding it is an ancient forest a sacred grove, several hundred acres, beech and oak wood, covered full of moss. Everywhere else in Provence is that scrubby, mackey type vegetation. But this is an ancient sacred grove that's never been cut down. And that's why it's a kind of unique ecosystem around this sacred cave. So when you go on a pilgrimage to the shrine of St. Mary Magdalene, you have to walk through this mossy forest. It's a complete surprise in Provence to enter a cool, mossy forest going to this sacred cave. Again, that's almost certainly an older sacred site that's been Christianized. The well under Chartres Cathedral was already a place of pilgrimage before the cathedral was built. The holy wells at Wells Cathedral uh, were almost in a sacred place uh, before that. Under the high altar of Winchester Cathedral, there's an ancient well. Uh, so uh, wells, springs, mountains, yew trees, uh, many of our churches are built next to trees that are at least a thousand years older than the church that was built in the Middle Ages. Um, these were all places of pilgrimage. Um, the most important in England was, of course, Canterbury, the shrine of St. Thomas the Martyr, St. Thomas a Becket, who was murdered as a high priest of England, archbishop, murdered at the altar by the agents of the king. And this became a massively important pilgrimage um, and, of course, it's the basis of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which are stories that pilgrims told each other on the way. But at the Protestant Reformation, pilgrimage was banned. Thomas Cromwell issued an injunction against pilgrimage, forbidding it, and the army was used to suppress the pilgrimage to Canterbury. The shrine at Walsingham, the Black Madonna of Walsingham in Norfolk, uh, was desecrated, the shrine was destroyed, and the image of the Black Madonna was burned in a public bonfire. So there was a tremendous desecration and iconoclasm that went on uh, to suppress pilgrimage. The same happened in Germany and Scandinavia, uh, the Protestant countries. Uh, um, it carried on in the Catholic countries because they didn't suppress it, and, and also in the Orthodox countries. Um, so this left a great void in the English soul, this, uh, this 
because it was such an important part. Uh, and within a couple of hundred years, the English had invented a substitute for pilgrimage in the form of tourism. I think tourism, I think, is a form of secularized or frustrated pilgrimage. Um, uh, people, tourists still go to the ancient sacred places like the Cathedral of Notre Dame, the temples in Egypt, the, the great temples of India, the cathedrals of England. Um, uh, but they don't go as pilgrims because they're modern secular people. They have to pretend that what they're really interested in is art history. So uh, guides spring up to tell them all sorts of historical facts that go in one ear and come out the other. Um, and because they, they can't kneel down and say a prayer or light a candle, because that would mean they were superstitious and primitive and childish and that sort of thing. So they have to pretend to be modern. Um, but I think one of the most helpful paradigm shifts in the modern world would be to shift back from tourism uh, to pilgrimage. You still go to these places, but light a candle when you get there and say a prayer rather than just take photos. Um, so, uh, What's happening is, is fascinating at the moment in Europe. There's this massive revival of pilgrimage. Uh, the iconic one, which most people have heard of, is, of course, the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Um, but most people don't realize how recent this revival has been. It was certainly a major place of pilgrimage in the Middle Ages. Um, after the Protestant pilgrims stopped coming from Northern Europe at the Reformation, uh, the flow of pilgrims diminished. Um, and the, then during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, when, uh, no, the, uh, in the Elizabethan period, when uh, Sir Walter Raleigh raided um, Spain, uh, they hid the relics to avoid the British capturing them, and then they forgot where they were. So that rather reduced the um, impact of the pilgrimage to Santiago until they were rediscovered in the 19th century. Um, but the pilgrimage was consciously revived uh, after the Second World War. And uh, they started putting way marks up and providing places for pilgrims to sleep uh, in the 1980s. And in 1987, 1,000 people went on pilgrimage to Santiago on foot. It was a big revival compared with the mere trickle before that. Last year, it was 280,000 people went there on foot or on bicycle or horseback, mainly on foot. This is a massive uh, revival. And many people in England who want to go on pilgrimage uh, say, oh, I'm going on the Camino, I'm going to Santiago. I know lots of people have done that. Um, and because it's the first major revival. There's been a similar revival in France, a three-day pilgrimage on foot from Paris to Chartres. In Norway, in the last 10 years, the ancient pilgrimage route to Trondheim, the shrine of uh, St. Olaf in the Cathedral of Trondheim uh, from Oslo, a, a walk through the mountains was re, has been revived. The Crown Prince opened it 10 years ago, um, and it's now a major place of pilgrimage in Scandinavia. There are people reviving ancient pilgrimage routes in Wales and Scotland right now. And here in England, uh, the British Pilgrimage Trust, of which I'm a patron, um, is currently, it's only been going for a couple of years, but it's currently reopening uh, the old pilgrim route from Southampton to Canterbury over the South Downs, a 17-day walk that goes past about 50 village churches, three holy wells, several sacred mountains, um, and uh, uh, two or three cathedrals. Um, this, uh, you can see on the website, British Pilgrimage Trust, um, uh, is uh, now reopening the footpath 
images so on foot here in England. So you don't have to go to Santiago if you want to go on the pilgrimage. You can do it right here. Um, they're also opening up pilgrimage routes to one-day routes to cathedrals, so you can go on one-day pilgrimages. Um, I'll just finish by describing some of my own uh, very briefly. And Godson, who's um, got everything, he's an overprivileged boy, I would say, um, and I've stopped giving presents to children or indeed to adults stuff because I think everyone has too much stuff. So I only give experiences now. And when he was 14, um, I couldn't think what to do. And my friends in the British Pilgrimage Trust were just starting reopening these routes. So I thought that's a good idea. So I said to him, would you like to go on a pilgrimage to Canterbury? We'd go the last eight miles of the pilgrim route. We'd take the train to Charton. There's a little station there. And it's on foot through meadows and orchards and hills and woods. And we go to a holy well uh, near Canterbury, the Black Prince's well. Then we go to Canterbury. We walk round the cathedral, circumambulated, um, go with an intention, light candles at the shrine, have a cream tea, go to Coral Evensong, and then come home on the high-speed train. <laughs> I said, would you like to do that? And I fully expected him to say no. But actually, he, without hesitation, said yes. And um, we had a most glorious day. We got to know each other much better. It was extraordinarily happy. We had a wonderful journey to Canterbury. And so the next year, we went to Ely. We took the train to Waterbeach and did the last bit along the Cam. Again, circumambulating it, which all most places traditionally, you walk around it clockwise first to make it the center. It makes it much more powerful to make it the center. Um, and so we did the same with Ely, shrine candles at the shrine of St. Ethelfrieda, cream tea, coral even song. And then um, six months ago, for his 16th birthday, we went to Lincoln, the last eight miles of the way along the Lincoln Ridge, um, uh, the same general procedure. This year, we'll probably go to Wells or possibly Chichester, because that's on, on the, this iconic Camino of England. I'm eager to try out bits of it. Um, uh, uh, the British Pilgrimage Trust um, as a one-day pilgrimage to Chichester. Um, so here's another spiritual practice that's open to everybody. It costs nothing or very little. I mean, you do, of course, have to buy food on the way, and sometimes you have to stay in Airbnb or, if, or you can just camp. Um, and the British Pilgrimage Trust are trying to find cheap or even free camping places. Some churches, the vicars, have opened their churches for pilgrims to sleep in them. And so that's a very low-cost way of doing the pilgrimage. So these spiritual practices are open to everyone. A lot of people who go to Santiago um, and on pilgrimages in Britain, uh, there were several organized ones by the Pilgrimage Trust last summer, um, are atheists or agnostics or not religious people. But they find this a highly powerful, meaningful experience. And I think that's the beauty of it. It's open to everyone. You don't have to sign up to a belief system in fact, on the British Pilgrimage Trust website, when they're describing the pilgrimages they're leading, it says, bring your own beliefs. Um, <laughs> it's about experience. So I think these are only three of the spiritual practices. In my book, I also discuss connecting with nature, relating to plants, rituals, um, and music chanting, dancing. Um, these are all different kinds of spiritual practices. There are many more. But I think the key thing is that with spiritual practices, especially in a secular world, 
Uh, we start from experience, and this means it's open to everybody because everyone can have experiences. Um, and you can leave the beliefs on one side for the time being, and the, the experiences may change your beliefs, but you don't start with uh, the belief, a belief system. You start with practices which are a matter of experience from which you can learn and in which you can participate. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we'll have time for questions now and some answers maybe. Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, just raise your hand and I'll pass you the microphone. Well, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I'm quite interested in your, your, what you talk, talked about gratitude. And so in my, with my family, I have two children. We, we don't even eat together all the time, but if we eat together, we never say um, grace or anything like that. And so, for example, if I say to my son, well, let's say grace, and, you know, which I'd be keen to do. Well, you know, if I talk to him about physics or maths, you know, he likes that, and I can persuade him that there's, there's some meaning there. But although he thinks there might be something in a spiritual practice, it's very hard to convince him that there's really something in this. And I'm just wondering, you know, about how to approach it. I think probably the simplest way would be to say, it's good to have a pause before we just start eating. And can we have a silent time together and just hold hands? And you could say, I'm going to, during the silent period, give thanks because I'm happy to be alive and glad we've got this food and glad we've got the money to buy it and our home to eat it in. And if you don't want to say thanks, you know, that's up to you. But at least let us all have a silent time together, just a pause. You might find that works. I, I found even when my own sons were in their most rebellious teenage uh, state that, that they didn't object to that. Um, yeah, thank you. W wonderful uh, talk. Um, uh, I, I'm very interested to learn more about the other spiritual practices. Uh, I was wondering the hope as a practice. Sorry, uh, I was wondering if you see hope, hope. as a spiritual practice or, or perhaps vision or... Well, yes, I do see hope as a spiritual practice. In, in a way, it's, it's an, another category of spiritual practices which is traditionally called the cultivation of virtues. Um, one of the points Alain de Botton makes in his book Religion for Atheists is that in traditional religious societies, people were warned against vices and encouraged to cultivate virtues. And the vices that in Christian society people were warned against were the seven deadly sins. Um, and they were encouraged to practice the seven virtues. Um, he points out in the modern world, uh, there's, no insight, insight, in, there's no mention of virtues, and most people don't know what they are. Uh, but there's plenty of incentive to commit the seven deadly sins because every advertising holding encourages <laughs> envy, greed, lust, pride. You know, the, 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 the seven deadly sins, gluttony, avarice, um, these are things that are or sloth. Um, these are things which um, 
come naturally to us as humans and it can easily be encouraged by advertising and life, modern lifestyles. Um, but there's no incentive to virtue. Um, so I think the, 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 the four cardinal virtues, which in the Middle Ages everyone was taught, you know, the prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude, are things which the whole ancient world agreed about, not just Christians. You know, everyone agrees it's important to be prudent, you know, not stupid or foolish in the way that it's important to be fortitude, to, to be strong and, and brave. And, and, and um, temperance, not to sort of just get drug addicted or completely carried away. But the three Christian virtues, of course, are faith, hope, and charity, or love. And um, these are things which Christians were traditionally encouraged to practice, that hope is a virtue. And the point about virtues, as Aristotle pointed out, Christianity, I mean, this is just the wisdom of the ancient Virtues are habits, and the reason we should cultivate them is that we should cultivate good habits and bad habits, because if you make it a habit, then it just becomes part of your being, and part of your being is then uh, concerned with if, if you make hope a habit, and it's in, encouraged by religious practices like prayer, but it, it doesn't have to be, but I mean, it's much easier if you pray to be hopeful. Um, hope is a habit. And the virtues are habits that we can actually cultivate. Um, the most important, as the New Testament says in the Christian context, is love or charity. Um, but faith and hope, um, trust, faith is really trust. And hope is being not just optimistic. Optimistic can be a completely irrational optimism. But hope is um, the trust that things will ultimately turn out for the best. Um, so I, I would say these are spiritual practices, uh, from, from each kind of spiritual practice is different from the others, but the combination of virtues is totally out of fashion in the modern world. Um, it's smuggled back into schools, uh, but you can't call it cultivating virtues, because people say, oh no, that's Christian. Uh, you know, you can't have anything Christian, that's the biggest issue of them all. But if you call it character building or resilience, uh, you can encourage it. And there are character-building programs in schools and residency programs, which are really a disguised form of trying to teach children the virtues, but they have to do it under heavy disguise because the National Secular Society would object if they thought it had any religious content. On the other hand, of course, the secular humanists themselves uh, believe in the cultivation of humanist virtues. So it's, it's not against, uh, as if they're against them. They just have their own secularized version of them. Um, could you say uh, a little about what you understand by consciousness, whether it's something you can um, define or only experience? Well, obviously we can all experience consciousness. I mean, we wouldn't be talking on here now if we weren't aware of what consciousness is. Um, it's, it's, I, I would define it in terms of awareness um, as opposed to unawareness. You know, when we're asleep, uh, we're not aware in the same way. We still have a residual awareness. If there's a loud noise or the phone rings, we wake up. So there's an aware, a background awareness. But um, I myself find the, 
the best way to think about consciousness is in terms of uh, consciousness being a realm of possibility. You see, a lot of our minds are unconscious. A lot of our mental activity is completely unconscious. It's habitual. Most of our minds function unconsciously. So the mind and consciousness are not identical because a lot of the mind is unconscious. Um, so what is consciousness about? Um, I'm very influenced by the philosopher Whitehead, who thinks that consciousness is primarily to do with choice, making choices among possibilities. Um, and when things are possible, when we have possibilities in our minds, um, they're not the same as facts or objects, because they haven't happened yet. They're, they're just possibilities. But that's what inhabits consciousness, possibilities. Possible things I could have said, possible things I might want to do, possible choices I might make, possible ways I might go home this evening, possible things I might say next. Um, our minds are full of possibilities, and one of the functions of our conscious minds is to choose among these possibilities. For example, um, every one of us chose to come here this evening, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Um, and so there was a time in the past when we hadn't decided whether we'd be coming here or not. We could have done lots of other things, and our minds would have had a range of different possibilities within them, which are not physical in the normal sense of physical, because they're only possibilities. As soon as we decide among those possibilities to come here, then the fact we're here is a measurable objective fact. Um, and um, our minds are now open to a whole new range of possibilities. So I see... Um, Consciousness is primarily concerned with possibility. And I would say that the consciousness of God is, the con is, is that consciousness which contains all possibilities, ground of all, pos all conscious experience of possibility. And I think that when a bee flies into your garden, um, it has to make choices. You know, which flower does it land on? There's all these flowers, blue ones, yellow ones, etc., ones that smell nice, ones that don't smell much. And the bee buzzes in, I think, in its awareness, there are all these different possible, there are all these flowers, it can see them all. I think it has a conscious experience of the garden with all these flowers, and then, either out of habit or conscious choice, or maybe just habit, uh, it lands on one flower and collects the pollen, and then takes off, and then has to choose among all the other possibilities. I think every animal has to make choices among possibilities, and to that degree, uh, it's aware of the things um, about which it has to choose, usually to do with possible actions in the immediate future. So it's immediate kind of awareness. Our possibilities extend further because we have more complicated kinds of minds and more possibilities open to us. Uh, thank you, Robert. <coughs> Brilliant talk. The, the title of the talk is Science and Spiritual Practice. Uh, the uh, beneficial result of spiritual practice uh, is obvious, I, I think, at least to the people who are sitting here. Uh, I think the job of science is actually to demystify why it's so. I mean, science is about demystifying things. Uh, because those beneficial effects are normally still mystery. Why does it work? Why do they work? So I think the science as it is are not capable to provide the job of demystify this. 
So can you comment how science should change in order to explain all those? Well, I think, uh, you know, I don't see science as a complete system of explanation of all reality. It's about the way in which the natural sciences are about the way we understand the regularities of nature. Um, and I think that the sciences can shed light and do shed light on spiritual practices when it comes to heartbeat and, and stress hormones and, and measurable happiness and things like that, and length of life and so on. Uh, what the sciences don't do is shed light on ultimate metaphysical questions like what is the meaning of existence? The sciences are neutral about the meaning of existence. Um, and they don't shed light on the ultimate nature of reality. I think to be like that because the sciences are, I think, almost have to be secular because otherwise you'd have Muslim scientists and Hindu scientists and atheist scientists all quarreling with each other instead of working together. Um, I think what's, the, what's wrong with the way science is done at the moment is that it's been linked to a particular belief system, namely philosophical materialism. Um, and I don't think there's any reason why science has to be committed to that belief system. I'm a scientist. I believe in science. I do scientific research. In fact, I've been doing experiments all day. Um, and, um, and I'm not a materialist. Um, so I think that there, has, there are always areas beyond what science can explain, because it, it doesn't really... Uh, it's not the ultimate science that deals with ultimate reality, although some scientists would like it to be. I think it always has to leave open these ultimate questions, because I think uh, it has to exist in a world with a plurality of religions. And uh, you know, if, if I, I, I'm a Christian, so if I said science should reflect the Christian doctrine of God, reality, then it would upset Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and so on. And there's no need to do that. Um, so, um, you know, I think science is limited in what it can do. And I don't think it will, uh, but I think it can help us. And I think science itself is a spiritual practice. It's an attempt to understand more deeply the world we live in. And it can, um, it, it can be a big help. I mean, one of the things that the sciences have done is given us a completely new view of the universe that no one ever had until the 20th century. <coughs> no one knew until the 1920s that there were galaxies outside our own. Uh, we now know that there are billions of galaxies and the universe is billions of years old. It's vastly greater than anything anyone had ever imagined before. Uh, but the trouble is, from the point of view of secular science, then this is meaningless. I mean, it's a universe of meaningless matter with no purpose, and it's all unconscious. Um, whereas if we take the view that there's a conscious ground of all being, then this means that God, or the ultimate ground of being, has a vastly greater arena of action than anyone ever imagined <coughs> before. And when we start reimagining the world in the light of spiritual, um, our spiritual perspective, then we get a, a view where science can illuminate the spiritual realm and the spiritual realm can illuminate science, but they don't have to be the same thing. Um, yeah, thank you.
Thank you for that. Actually, my question is a follow-up to your uh, previous comment. So, were you, you're saying that it's important that um, science is atheist so that it can explain material reality. Um, does that imply that the fact that we've got different religions uh, means that there's different spiritual realities? Or <laughs> I'm not saying science has to be atheist. I'm, I'm saying that it, it has to be... It, it can't commit to one particular religion, and, but I don't think it should commit to atheism either, which it is at the moment for many scientists. I think there are different ways of understanding spiritual reality that different religions have. Um, I think at the mystical level, where people have experiences of an ultimate reality that goes beyond form and words and so on, they may be very similar. But as soon as you put things into language, then each language is different, with a whole different set of concepts and metaphors. Um, so I would say that the ground of all religions is, is, is a kind of sense of an, a being beyond our normal realm of thought. I mean, almost by definition, God or ultimate reality has to be beyond the limits of our limited human mind, which have evolved on this planet in a vast universe. And they've evolved for dealing with things like flints, stone tools, and and now computers and iPhones and things, but still um, very limited compared with this vast universe. Um, so it would be very surprising if our minds could grasp the ultimate nature of reality. And in fact, all religions uh, admit that God or ultimate reality is ultimately beyond our understanding. So, um, but as soon as we try and understand it, we have to try and understand it and make models of reality, then... Um, those models are going to be different. And the, the mythologies of different religions, their historical circumstances, the stories they tell, the pilgrimage places that they venerate are different in each case. Um, that doesn't mean that one's right and the others are wrong. Um, it just means they're different, just like human languages are different. I mean, we all speak different languages, Russian, English, Hindi, you know, etc., Malay. Um, it doesn't prove English is the best. It just proves different people have different ways of being human and speaking human languages. So I see the different religions as being historically conditioned ways of trying to understand a reality that's basically beyond our understanding, as all religions admit. Uh, but nevertheless, we have to do our best and, and um, make the best model we can. I mean, the Christian model of the Holy Trinity um, is a model of God that says God has three main aspects. Um, and the Hindu view of understanding of God in the idea of Sat-Jit-Ananda, being knowledge bliss, is a kind of Trinitarian model. You can find Trinitarian models in many religions that actually have a lot in common. But both Christianity and Hinduism, which are the religions I know best, I lived in India for seven years, so I'm much influenced by the Hindu tradition. Um, both of them say, well, the ultimate reality is beyond these models. Meister Eckhart, the great medieval mystic, said, the Godhead, the ultimate reality of God is beyond the model of the Trinity or beyond any model. And the Hindus say the same, that um, there's something called Saguna Brahman, which is the aspect of God that we can understand. But the ultimate reality is Nikguna Brahman, God, Brahman, God without qualities, about which you can say almost nothing, which is the ultimate beyond our conception. So there's sort of different layers in, in these religions, but the ultimate reality is one that one can't approach 
through words or forms, but um, through direct experience. And, and the, the most intense and deep mystic experiences are the best one can do to get there or to participate in that being. Yes, I, I think that's. I think that's what it is. That it is. Yes. I, in any case, even in Christian theology, it says God created man in His image. Most serious theologians, like Saint Thomas Aquinas, never thought that it meant that God was like a human. It meant that God's conscious being, um, the trinitarian structure of God's mind and, and being, was reflected in our being, or indeed in the being of creation. So. St. Augustine said, you know, the, the ultimate nature of the divine trinity is the knower, the known, and the joy of knowing. And, and so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a, a conscious model of the trinity. And our minds participate in the being through the way our consciousness works and the way our being works. In that sense, we're an image of God, but not in the sense that God looks like a person or he sits on a cloud with a white beard, which is a view that no serious theologian has Thank you. I was wondering if you could comment on some, you, you sort of addressed this in your talk, but I was wondering if we could just come back to this, uh, the question of this uh, secular meditation or the um, rather uh, meditation as a way of um, very, very, very rational, empirical sort of universe, where it, you take something like Buddhism, and it, which, ha, which I, what I would consider a non-theistic uh, religion, not atheistic, but non-theistic, with, with a, a cosmology and soteriology and metaphysics as a part of it. Now that's gotten taken away by people like Bachelor, Stephen Bachelor, and others. Um, in, in addition, I feel some of that ambivalence, although I think it's great people are meditating and doing mindfulness, but with a mindfulness <laughs> movement that is sort of taking something which has a Buddhist heritage. And I was wondering if you could comment a bit on that, and if you have any. Yes. Well, I mean, the secular Buddhist movements, Stephen Batchelor is one of the leading proponents uh, uh, in Britain, and, and Sam Harris is part of that, too. Um, what they're saying is that we've learned these techniques from Buddhists, but basically Buddhists still are mired in superstition. They may say they haven't got God, but they still believe in reincarnation. The Dalai Lama consults oracles. Um, um, the Dzogchen teachers believe in the rainbow body. Um, the lamas believe that they're reborn. The Dalai Lama himself is supposedly a rebirth. All of that is superstition. These people are wrong because they're not secular Buddhists. They're still mired in the superstitions of religion. And, and what Sam Harris says about the Dalai Lama of Chen tradition, one of the deepest in Tibetan Buddhism, is that what we're doing is plucking the jewel from the dung heap of religion. It's a complete contempt for the religion from which they're learning. Instead of saying, thanks to the Buddhist tradition for giving us this. He, he said, you know, and, and um, what Alan de Botton says is we're going to steal these religious practices from religion. It, I mean, it seems to me such a contemptuous attitude. They can't get over their atheism uh, by just saying the thank you. They don't have to become Buddhists or Christians or Jews. or They, they can just say thank you for giving us these gifts. Um, so, 
Um, I think the problem with it is that um, they're trying to fit these practices into a kind of modern atheist, secular humanist uh, worldview. But that's not true to the tradition from which they come. And uh, the, the, although the Buddhism is non-theistic in one sense, I mean, it's not totally non-theistic. If you go to a Tibetan temple, the place is full of images of gods and goddesses and dakinis and so on. And they would say, oh, yes, this is the realm of the gods. Yes, we have gods, we have dakinis. They're a bit like angels, I suppose. Um, uh, but the ultimate reality is beyond all these images. Um, so th they don't think that nirvana or the ultimate reality, or they have these kayas, Sambhogya kaya, and, and, and all these kind of realms, uh, conscious realms. They don't think those are just nerve impulses in brains. They think that there are conscious realms out there in which we can participate. Um, so although they don't call it God, they've got plenty of gods and goddesses. And the same with Theravada Buddhist temples in Sri Lanka and Thailand. When you go to these temples, there's an image of Buddha in the central shrine, but all around it, there are these goddess temples. There's Kali, there's Murugan, there's all these different <coughs> Hindu gods and goddesses who are what people actually pray to. Um, you know, they do the business of religion. You know, a lot of religion's practical. You know, you want to pass exams. You're you want it to get better. You pray about these things. You do that to the Hindu gods. You don't bother the Buddha with these mundane concerns. <laughs> so they kind of outsource. Uh, it's, it's, a bit like, it's, it's a bit like Catholic cathedrals, you know, where you've got all these chapels. You know, if you've lost something, you pray at the shrine of St. Anthony. I think it's the same thing in Hinduism. If you want to gain something material, you don't pray to the Godhead. You pray to Ishwara. Yes, you pray to different forms or different sort of ones who specialize in different things. You know, there's goddesses who specialize in giving you children if you're infertile. And, you know, in the Christian, in the Catholic tradition, you've got the same with all these saints with these specialized departments. You know, Saint Jude, the saint of lost causes. And, and so and there's something for everyone there in, in these outsourced <coughs> um, uh, saints or gods. I think the beauty of the, uh, the, these big religious traditions is that they're inclusive. They don't say, they don't exclude things. They include uh, all these different aspects. Thank you, and um, thank you for the talk. Um, on uh, science and spirituality, I wanted to ask about the question of evolution, because um, I'm assuming that, in your view, it doesn't contradict a spiritual view of the world or of our source, um, but I wanted to ask if you could briefly um, bridge the gap, as it were, because I, I think um, for me and many other people like me, it's it's quite a question and one of um, maybe one, one of the main sort of like scientific dogmas that I was taught, and mm. uh, but really I have no experience of, and um, it's it's yeah. all somebody's words, just as the religion was um, somebody's words too. Well, I think, you see, there's a confusion about evolution. Evolution as a principle of things changing in time, I think, is true. And it's not just true of biological species. It's true of human society. It's obvious that technology has evolved in the sense that people didn't have smartphones when any of us were children, and they didn't have most things that we now take for granted, like the Internet. Um, so that's true at the human level. It's clearly true that human societies have evolved. You know, the 
10,000 years ago, the most advanced technology was a stone axe. And, 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 and now we've got sort of huge skyscrapers. And, it, and it's also, I think, a simply a matter of fact that living organisms have evolved. There haven't always been exactly the same organisms. That's why we find fossils of dinosaurs, and there aren't any today. Um, so uh, all of that, and, and the idea of the whole universe has evolved, um, seems to me perfectly reasonable, too. I mean, the evidence all fits, the Big Bang, the expanding universe. So I don't have any problem with the evolution as a fact. Um, what I have a problem with is evolution as a materialist dogma, that it's totally purposeless. Why? Because we believe everything's purposeless. Why? We just assume it. Um, that's the Dawkins view. We just assume it. And that biological evolution is nothing but uh, the interplay of chance mutations and natural selection, both of them unconscious and purposeless. Um, that is a dogmatic interpretation of evolution that I think is wrong um, and puts a lot of people off needlessly. Um, so my own view is that, and, and you see, the problem with the intelligent design type arguments, and I know some people are keen on intelligent design, is that why I don't like that approach is that it seems to me excessively mechanistic. Um, they share the same assumption as conventional biologists, living organisms and machines. I reject that view myself. I think they're organisms. But you see, since the 17th century, Christian apologetics in, in, its, in some Protestant forms took the view, okay, the world's a machine, but God still exists because God's the designer of the machine. He's like an engineer outside nature who's the wonder mathematician and engineer who's designed the machinery of nature. Therefore, if living organisms are perfectly adapted, they must be intelligently designed by an external engineering god who must therefore reach in and cause mutations in particular ways and, and so on. Well, you see, I think that that's a false conception of life. I don't think God's external to nature. I think God's internal to nature as well as being transcendent, imminent and transcendent. I think that, uh, that the, that view that sees God creating the universe in the first place, um, like an engineer starting a machine, um, means that all God's creativity is taken out of nature and put in a sort of initial starting it all off design. Um, Whereas if you have an evolutionary view, creativity goes on all the time. It's not just at the beginning. It's imminent within nature. There's constant creativity. The whole of evolution is a reflection of the creative process that's going on in us and in nature and everywhere. And I think a view of divine creativity is ongoing as part of the way things are, but as part of the way the world develops and part of the way we develop and our societies develop, is a much better view because it enables us to see this creativity as inherent in life. And one of the things that puzzle me most about creationists is that if you take seriously the, the Bible, and particularly the book of Genesis, chapter 1, it doesn't say God intelligently designed the animals and plants. It said, God said, um, let the earth bring forth trees that give fruit after their kind. And it says, let the seas bring forth the fish and the birds and the moving creatures. Um, it's, theologically speaking, it's called the doctrine of immediate creation. Uh, in other words, God empowers nature to bring forth life rather than bringing it into being directly. And that's a com completely standard 
theological interpretation that is an in empowerment of nature. Would you say then um, that creativity is meaningful as opposed to random? Well, I wouldn't in, say... In nature or in um, human works? Well, creativity, it's, it, it's not equally successful, you see. There's, um, one of the things about natural selection is that what it says is that not all creativity... Every, there are lots of mutant plants and animals, and some of them are hopelessly maladapted, and they're filtered out by natural selection pretty quickly. And the same, same is true of human creativity. Every week in New Scientist, you can read about this week's patents. You know, people are inventing gadgets all the time. You never hear of most of them again. I, I know I'm a musician. I, I often... <laughs> yes. Well, exactly. The side of hundreds of new tunes coming into being all the time, and not that many succeed. It may be some are wrongly selected by commercial forces. Um, but um, there's prodigious creativity at every level of nature. And... Um, you know, in the chemical realm, in the biological realm, in the human realm, in the cultural realm. Uh, prodigious creativity. Um, a tremendous bounty of creativity, but far too much in the, the, far too, too much that can survive or can be adapted to what's the conditions in which it finds itself. So then you have natural selection in the realm of nature or market forces in the realm of music or products or business. Um, whereby some things get selected and they then become kind of habitual and part of the nature of things, but then more creativity. So I wouldn't say every little bit of creativity um, is divinely inspired. I would say that the ability to be creative is ultimately divinely inspired, but it doesn't mean that everything that we create is a work of genius. Um, yes. I'm afraid that... Um I'm so sorry, everybody. We've just run out of time. Thank you so, so much. Can we just give a round of applause then, Alex? Good. Thank you very much. Um, I know that... There are a lot of you who would like to ask questions. And Rupert, we've, we've got lots of refreshments at the back, sandwiches um, and lovely things to eat. Um, and I think, Rupert, you're happy to um, sign books um, at the back as well. Yes. So please do stay um, for more conversation. And let's not end it just yet. <laughs> Thank you very much.